Clearly, if we want to avoid any misunderstanding, the best thing is not to use any rhetoric whatsoever. In other words, we must try not to play any games with our words or ideas, not to arrange them in pairs or triplets or quadruplets, and to do no sentence tightrope walking. After all, when we get down to it, rhetoric is nothing else but arranging our words in neat little patterns, either by following a certain rhythm or by keeping the sentence in balanced suspense or by comparing or contrasting ideas. Often, a writer does all this at the same time, as Grafton in the sentence about the express in the east and the local train in the west, or Churchill in the blood, sweat, and tears sentence. Let's study these examples to learn something about the dangers of rhetoric. First, is it possible that the reader misses the rhythm of these sentences so that he doesn't get the significance of the arrangement. Let's see. In the Grafton sentence, the first half, quote, we are clearly riding the express in the Far East, unquote, is quick and determined, while the second half, quote, whereas in the West we seem, for the time being, to be on a local train, unquote, is slow awkward and hesitant. This checks, of course, with the meaning of the sentence, but how many of the hurried readers of a newspaper column will profit from such a subtle rhetorical device? How about the rhythm of the famous Churchill quotation, quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Churchill using a four-part sentence as his custom built the sentence up toward the word sweat. The speech was meant to encourage people in their war, war effort. Result, everybody now misquotes blood, sweat, and tears using a different three-part rhythm and ending up in the defeatist tears. Next, let's test the comparison and contrast device. Grafton obviously meant to say that things in Europe are going slow, things in the East fast. But the metaphor is unexplained, otherwise it would be a simile. And so the reader may easily get confused when he sees a naval war in the Pacific compared to a train instead of a ship and something about a local train in Europe, although the point seems to be that in Europe, things haven't yet started at all. The famous Churchill metaphor is even more trouble. First, all readers and listeners have skipped the toil so that there are now three items left, and what they have chiefly in common is is that they are wet. So the reader gets a vague notion that Churchill 
used a little word picture of three wet things instead of saying war. And that's that. Actually, Churchill, in his balanced phrase, described the battlefront, blood, the home front, toil, the consequences of battle, tears, and the consequences of home front, toil, sweat, putting them all in chronological and logical order. The question is, would it have been better for Grafton to say, quote, the war in Europe is slow in getting started, and for Churchill, you must expect great suffering and hard work? Nobody, of course, can answer such a question, but there is no doubt that the rhetorical versions are more apt to be misunderstood than the plain ones. So, let's add to our rules for plain talk. Do not use rhythm. Maybe your reader won't catch on. Do not use periodic sentences. Do not use rhetorical questions. Do not use metaphors without an explanation. Do not use contrasts without an explanation. Do not use irony. Half the people won't get it. Sounds simple, but do not forget that periodic sentences, with the frosting saved up for the end, are bound to crop up in our talk, and that almost every word in the language has been a metaphor sometime. Since most of the more complex motions, rather notions, are now covered by words that originally, in Latin, Greek, etc., meant simple everyday things, it's literally true to say that, quote, our language is a cemetery of dead metaphors, unquote. If you throw away all the dead metaphors out in this sentence, it means that our, quote, our tongue use is a sleeping place of dead carryovers, unquote. So we should take those anti-rhetorical rules for plain talk with a grain of salt, another metaphor, and at least cut down on our rhetoric wherever we can. If you are one of those people whom rhetoric comes natural, this will be hard on you. A good and horrible example might help. Here are some excerpts from the article by Philip Wiley on the Saturday Review of Literature. Begin excerpt. From 1929 to 1939, the mood of America was one of disappointment. With the beginning of the war in Europe, it became grievous disappointment. We are now facing the post-war era in a condition of abject pre-disappointment. Individuals who belong to minorities shake their heads about coming persecution. End of excerpt. All the build-up for abject pre-disappointment whatever that may mean, is cancelled out by the wrong-drawer metaphor, shake their heads. Begin excerpt. Labor worries about the hostility of the returning armies. Soldiers worry about getting jobs. 
the farmer is resigned to become a state charge. End of excerpt. Does that mean that farmers don't worry? Or are they resigned in order to avoid using the word worry three times? Quote, The detached wizard, the man from Mars, might be startled by the mood. The man from Mars is bound to be detached, but what makes him a wizard? He would wonder why we were weeping at the dim- diminution of economic gravy from the frontier. Oh, pioneers, they were out for gravy. The wizard from Mars will find the reason only if he hunts for a phys- psychological answer to the questions. All right, he is from Mars and a wizard. He will find that most Americans are not men but children. I know it's a metaphor, but what about the women? He will find that their emotional responses to their magnificently implemented present are unluckily founded upon a set of six-year-old myths. He doesn't mean the lies of 1938. He means fairy tales for kids. And proverbs which had the appearance of truth only so long as raw resources were potentially available even to black sheep ducking. Ah, the perfect mixed metaphor at last. Disgrace in Dakota and hobos walking in the wilderness. This looks as if the frontier consisted of two regions, A, Dakota, a haven for black sheep, and B, the wilderness, frequented by hobos. For the literature of America is entirely a wishful literature insofar as all juvenile and most adult writing is concerned. Well, what is it? Entirely or mostly? Now the Martian. No wizard this time. We'll note that when the hope of becoming rich by magic is lost to a nation of infantile people, whose subconscious philosophy is constellated around the maintenance of conditions in which will support that hope, then those people have lost their all, spiritually speaking. This time, the italics were already there in the original, so the writer must have meant that a philosophy can be subconscious and that such a bunch of formless half-thoughts can be constellated like stars around the maintenance of conditions. Or if he didn't mean anything so literal, what did he mean by all those italicized metaphors? They have lost their dream. They have lost their direction. They have lost any concept of their purpose. It's rhythmical, all right, but it sounds rather like an anticlimax. The dream was always an illusion. Now it has happened. He explains one metaphor by another by one for the same thing. This is what might be called the perfect Roget's thesaurus sentence. The dream was an illusion. The notion was a whim. The fancy was a myth. The vision was a shadow. The phantom was a chimera. Cinderella is a mother of our debacles. 
Let's stop here. This goes on and on and on in the same style.